song like that ought to motivate us, certainly to, it, it just seems like that's a, 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 a charging uh, general giving us a, uh, a motivation to go in and fight the kind of battle that we need. Uh, it's a spiritual battle. But if you would turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 16. I want to talk to you about the church at Philippi and how that got started. It's very interesting because Paul and Barnabas had taken John Mark with them on the first missionary journey. They had finished that. And then there are some challenges along the way in that journey, but then there are challenges among brethren and there are challenges that uh, there's always a pushback. There's always obstacles in spreading the gospel and trying to do what we're supposed to be doing. Sometimes there are good, well-meaning brethren who sometimes disagree. Paul and John Mark have this contention when they're about to set out to go and, and see how these churches are doing that they established on the first journey. Because John Mark did not stay with them, Paul is minded not to take him with them on the next journey. Uh, and it's so strong of a contention that uh, it's just not going to work out uh, this time. So Paul takes Silas, and Barnabas takes Mark, and, but they continue the work. We, we're, we're glad, though, that sometime later, Paul and John Mark must have worked out this contention because he says, send him to me because he's useful for service. And so here we see that sometimes there may be a difference in opinion. There may be brethren who are both, both brethren, both working, both are active, but they have a difference of opinion on necessarily how to accomplish that or the timing of it and, and so forth. But they're still on the same team. And so I, I, I believe that's a good example for us, not to get discouraged whenever we have a difference of opinion. But here's something else that's interesting is in Acts chapter 15, there was also another challenge. There were some brethren who thought that you still had to observe these Old Testament commands. And the hot-button topic of their day was you got to still be circumcised in order to be saved. And that's what some were saying. So they came together to talk about this and say, we, we've got to sort this out. We've got to deal with it. They didn't sweep it under the rug. They talked it out. They didn't ignore the problem. But they talked among themselves, and, and they came to the conclusion that the apostles never commanded such a thing. And since the apostles never commanded it, and since God was working in the Gentiles' lives, that we don't need to burden them with anything uh, beyond what the Scriptures say and what God has told us under the New Covenant. And look at the Gentiles' lives. Look at what God is doing in their life. Why do we want to compel these Gentiles to live as, as the Jews when we ourselves as Jews are not able to, to do that? Why do, why do we want to put a harder burden on them than the scriptures say? So let's send letters to the churches and let them know that the, these are the only things that are necessary. And we want to encourage them to do that. So they're going to, who's going to send out these letters are the apostles on, on, on their journey. And that's when Paul and Silas are on their way to go back and confirm the, 
the churches that, that, that were established on the first journey. But here's what's also interesting is that Paul, if he had his way, and if he would have done what he wanted to do, he would have gone into Asia. But yet the Spirit forbade that. And about the same time, Paul has this vision. He has a dream. And in the dream, there is a man over in Macedonia saying, come over into Macedonia and help us. And so what we see here is God's hand and his providence in the working and the spread of the gospel. God is good at putting a preacher in front of a willing heart. And that's exactly what is taking place here in the book of Acts. And what happens is, is Paul then sets sail from Troas. He goes across the sea over into Macedonia. And when he gets over to Philippi, which is the chief city in Macedonia, city, uh, uh, Philippi was named after Philip of Macedon who was actually the father of Alexander the Great. And now, there was also another great battle, this great battle of which uh, Rome became an empire. And that was fought there in Philippi. And so naturally speaking, there would have been some nationalism, there would have been some patriotism to Rome there in Philippi, some pride in their heritage, and how they became a part of this empire. And so that would also pose some challenges as they spread the gospel that there would be some who would have to choose is my allegiance to this empire or is my allegiance to God's empire. And obviously God's is greater. And so as they go and they're, they're going to teach, notice if you will in Acts 16, this is where we pick up in verse... 12. Acts 16, verse 12. And from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia and a colony, and we were in that city abiding certain days. And on the Sabbath, we went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made. We sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. So what we see here is normally Paul's mode of operation would be he would go into a synagogue on a Sabbath day because that's when Jews meet. So if Paul wanted to try to teach the Jews about Jesus, he would go into their synagogue and teach them if they were willing. He would try that for a while and then as they, if, if they receive it, then great. And if they didn't, he would move on to another synagogue. Or go somewhere else and preach it. Preach it to the Gentiles. But here we see an absence of something. We see he doesn't go into a synagogue. Instead he's looking for people who are following God already. People who are worshiping God. And what, instead of going into a synagogue, what he does is he goes to a riverside where there are women who are gathering because there was a place of prayer. And some have stated that perhaps this means that there might not have been a synagogue in Philippi. Yet there were women there who were still doing what they knew how to do as best they could. And what I learn about this is there are religious people who are doing what they know to do. 
But they don't know all the information just yet. They might be sincere. They might be open-hearted. They might be ready to listen. They just haven't been told all the information yet. And so we need people who are willing to go and talk to them and not you know, dismiss them and say, well, they're already religious. They're already involved in their religion and, and what they're doing. And so there's no use even talking to them. Let's just forget them and we go talk to somebody else. But that's not what Paul does. He finds people who are... Uh, worshiping God they just needed to learn about Jesus so in verse 14 a certain woman named Lydia a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira which worshiped God heard us whose heart the Lord opened that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul and that's the kind of attitude we need we need people who are and that's when we're trying to preach and teach and talk to the to the lost and people in the community, people we work with, people people that we're related to, people, acquaintances that we meet. It's not us to judge their heart, but it's us to give them the gospel. And if their heart is willing, and God opens their heart to receive what is said then that's their choice. But we want to give them that opportunity. In this case, we're thankful that there was a woman who was interested. And she listened intently to what Paul had said. And so then in verse 15, when she was baptized and her household, she besought us, saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. And so we see a very hospitable woman. She's already uh, doing the best she can, but when she learned that she needed to be baptized, she was. There's something to be said about that. Not only she, but her household. What a blessing it is whenever th those among us who have all of our family who are faithful who are listening to God and obeying God, that is such a blessing. But there are also some among us who do not have that, but yet can still obey God. There are also some among us who may be the only one in our family who is striving to serve God. And that you can do that just as well. But what we see here is that she and her household in this case did. Obviously, that's the ideal. But each person individually must make that choice. Now, she, she was baptized, but then she became hospitable. She not only, it wasn't like she was dunked and then she stopped. That was it, you know, like a one-time event thing. That, okay, okay, that's done and over with. Now I don't have to do anything. No, she wants to be involved in any way she can. And so what does she do? She invites them into her home. And we need that kind of spirit among us. That we're willing to share and willing to take people into our home. I have been on the receiving end of that kind of generosity many times throughout my life. And I'm forever grateful for the people that sometimes have taken me in. They never met me before that. They did not know me. They did not know what to expect. They didn't know if I was a picky eater. They didn't know that if, you know, if I would tear up their stuff. They didn't know if, you know, if they'd be glad whenever I left. 
And so, but yet there are many times I've been on the, this generous end, and it's, it's a blessing, I can say, as a preacher. I, I wish, if you haven't had the opportunity, that you, when you go and you visit other places, to take the time to spend time with brethren in other locations and be able to see that there are generous, godly brethren all over the world. And it's a wonderful family. And I wish more brethren could be able to experience what sometimes preachers get to experience on that end. Relationships are built. And faith is strengthened whenever you are able to... Uh, be involved in that way and be able to meet people. It's also uh, important to note that here is a woman who is active in the way she can. Sometimes there are people who think that uh, women can't do anything in the Lord's kingdom, and that's just the furthest thing from the truth. What the Bible does teach is that women should remain silent in the assembly in 1 Corinthians 14. That's clear. And then also what is clear is that in 1 Timothy 2, women should not lead or teach or usurp authority over men. Aside from those limitations, though, those are just a different role is all that is. But it's not to say women are not involved. Very much all throughout the book of Acts, we see women who are involved in the work. We see uh, Priscilla. We see uh, all, many other cases in Scripture of, of women Involved in the kingdom and the work. Later when Paul writes to this church in Philippi that starts here because of Lydia. He mentions women that labor with him. And so we need to make sure that we're, we're not saying women can't do anything. And there's nothing demeaning in this at all. This, this, this is nonsense to say that Paul was a woman hater. If you ever hear such such uh, statements of people, they don't really understand what the scriptures are saying. Just because there's a different role does not mean there's a devaluing or a less importance place, placed. However, now what we see in verse 16, there's another challenge that occurs. And think about God's handiwork that's involved as I read this. Chapter 16, verse 16. It came to pass as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. Same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days. But Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out, of, came out the same hour. Now one might say, well, so here's a little girl, there's a damsel who has a, this, she's demon possessed, but she's a slave. And her masters are making a lot of money off of her. Because this spirit in her, I, I don't know if I can explain that. Maybe because the spirit knows things from the spiritual realm, sees things that uh, uh, you know, those in the physical realm can't see, somehow is able to foretell future events. And she's able to do this. Her, her slave owners are making money on her. 
But she's bragging and praising the apostles. And someone might say, well, what's the problem? If they're saying, these, she, these men are the most high God. Why would that bother them? That's true, right? Yeah, it is true, but look who's saying it. Would you want a demon-possessed woman endorsing your message? Even if your message is true. Uh, and so Paul is annoyed by this and finally just says to the demon, come out, and it does. But now the people who are making money off of this girl are now upset because they've been hit in the wallet. And they're no longer making money and so now they're, they've got revenge that they're set on the apostles. And so they have them put in jail. In verse 19, And when our masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas, drew them into the marketplace and of the rulers, and brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. Now, does this give us some indication of the kinds of things that Paul and Silas might have been teaching? Even though they're being falsely accused, even though there are people who are antagonistic against them, but does it show that whenever you teach someone to obey God, that there's going to be things that are a clash with the culture? We've got to understand that, brethren. If we're trying to fit in and we think that the world's going to accept us, we think that what we're trying to do is, is everybody to like what we're trying to say and the, and the message. We don't really understand that God is calling us out of darkness. God is calling us to be separate from the world. And the world, when they look at us, they need to see us as different. They need to see us as not like them. And we need to understand that some people may be drawn to that, and that's what we hope. But there's going to be a lot of people who hate that because we are different. And they're not going to be so accepting. You might say, well, why would somebody not accept us? We're not hurting them. And that might be true. But it's always been that way. It's always going to be that way. And we need to know that, that they're going to be, we're going to be hated. Jesus said that. He warned us of that. And he said, whenever that happens, to rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. And we need to know that if we, are, if we are being accused or we're being punished or we're being ostracized from people in our community or whatever the challenge is, whatever people are saying about us because we're following God, we need to consider that an honor to suffer for the cause of Christ. And that's what they do. They, they beat them. In verse 22, the multitude rose up together against them. The magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into the prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. Now at this point, one might wonder, if you are the Apostle Paul, imagine, put yourself in Paul's shoes. You've been on this journey, you've left your home, you're on the, this traveling mission. 
You go into a city that you've never been into before. You're making progress. Good things are happening. Looks like it must be blessed by God. And then, here's a problem. Things were going so well. And now, here's a roadblock. Now they're thrown in jail. They're beaten. How embarrassing would it be to have, if, you, if you're Paul or Silas, to have your clothes ripped off of you and then beaten senselessly in front of a, uh, the, the public. And then now you're not, you're not in a jail where you have a library and you have a ping pong table and you have attorneys and you have, you know, uh, breaks, smoke breaks. This is not the kind of jail like that. You, are, you're, you have been many stripes laid upon you and you are in the stocks. And it's midnight. Would you be sitting there saying, why does all this happen to me? How come every time I try to do something right, something happens to me like this? Why, why, woe is me. What use is it to obey God whenever, if I obey God, I get into this kind of trouble? Would that be my attitude at this point? I, I wonder. We have to ask ourselves that question. And if we were embarrassed the way they were and shamefully treated the way they were for preaching, well, and now you're, you might think, well, what can I do in jail? I was, we, we just got a, a group started. There's a woman that was just uh, converted and her household. Things are going well. And now we've got this. This is a very poor timing. You might think that. But you don't know the future just yet either at that point. I'm amazed at the attitude of Paul. And I believe we need to get more of the kind of attitude that Paul has. Have more kind of faith. I don't know what God is doing. I don't know what I could... Here's, 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 here's the choice. What can I do in my circumstance? Whatever that is, to do the very best I can, look for opportunities to keep my eyes open. Or do I just bury my head in the sand and say, well, I can't do anything. What's the use? Every time I try, I just fail. Or, look at what the apostles do in verse 25. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. And the prisoners heard them. I, I, I'm amazed at that. I think that's a wonderful attitude. We need more of that. We need the kind of attitude that says, I'm going to continue to worship God. I'm going to continue to praise God. And this is not something organized. Nobody told them to do this. Nobody said, hey, after midnight, we're all going to have a prayer service and we're going to sing. You know, no, no one told them that. This was something they wanted to do. They wanted to pray. They wanted to sing. And where does that motivation come from? But from someone who believes and trusts and rejoices in what God has done in their life. And they're not bashful about their circumstance they're they're not saying hey we need to kind of keep it down 
because you know it's it's after midnight and you know others might hear us and you know I don't what are they going to do to us in here if they hear that we're praising God maybe maybe we need to tone this down a little bit no they're just being their self and they're praising God and 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 they're thankful to suffer for the cause of Christ but then verse 26, you, is it a coincidence you decide? But it says, a suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. If you had been Paul or, or Silas, you're in the stocks and the prison bars are opened and your, your shackles have now been loosed, would you take this, oh, this is our sign. We can go. Is God telling me I can now escape? Is that what I would have done? I wonder. What would you do? And yet, what we see is, is that, verse 27, the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep, seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. Now, he had a strict charge to keep these prisoners. I wonder, I don't, I don't know what, maybe perhaps the awakening out of sleep and not thinking clearly. Have you ever awoke from sleep and you're not thinking, you're, you're kind of, you got brain fog and you see the events and you make a rush judgment. And maybe perhaps he's thinking, they're going to execute me and I'm going to be dishonored. So I'm just going to go ahead and finish it off myself. Or, I wonder, would they have also executed his family and so I'm going to save them, so I'll go ahead and do that. But I have to ask you this question. What if he would have went ahead? How sad would that have been that he didn't have to? He thinks in his mind that all hope is lost. He thinks they've all fled. He's about to make a decision that looks that way to him at that time. How many times have some people made judgments that at the time they thought this was the only right choice? And it's a poor one, it turns out. I'm thankful that he did not. And it's a lesson to you and I that no matter how bleak the situation may look for me or you, and no matter what it looks like, do not do such a thing and harm yourself. Seek some other way. You are made in God's image, and there's hope if you still have breath in you, and God has a plan that he wants you to obey and he has heaven for you. He has forgiveness available no matter what you've done or no matter how bad you feel. There's still hope. I'm thankful that the apostles did not look at this as an opportunity and say, you know, he's about to do it. I, I'm not doing it to him. Let's just let him go ahead. They didn't look at each other and say, just let him go ahead. They cared more about the jailer. You see, that's the interesting. They didn't view him as the enemy. Sometimes people are in trouble with the law. 
and then, but yet they think the law is the enemy? Or the people that are simply working in the law are the enemy? And they might just be simply doing their job. Sometimes they do a poor job. Sometimes they do a good job. But either way, you don't view the... You've got to see that person in that uniform or that person in that position as a person with a soul and a person that God sent his son to die for. And you've got to love that person. Regardless, I don't know, did the jailer have a hand to play in the beating? Did he do that? Did he handle them roughly when he put them in the stocks? Did somebody else do this? I don't know who did that or if he's just now in charge of it. But either way, he's in charge of watching them. But they did not mistreat the jailer. They saw what he was about to do and they cared for him and said, Do not harm yourself. We're still here. Now, I believe because they cared, the jailer is now impressed. you telling me he didn't hear them singing and praising? you telling me that he was not impressed with their care for him, and so now because he knows there's something different about these men. These are not like other inmates that I've watched. These men are, are, are different than all those. And so I believe that he cares about what they have to say. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And that's the greatest question a person could ask. Now, some might wonder, well, is he asking about saving himself in his job or, or his situation because the prison doors, doors were open? Or was he asking about his salvation? Either way, whichever way you interpret that, they tell them what he needs to do to be saved before God. I need to ask myself, what do I need to do to be right with God? What must I do? You, you know, there is something I must do. God has done the heavy lifting. God has made the provisions available, and He's given us the message, and we need to obey the message. But there is something I must do, and you must do. And He tells them, and in verse 31, they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. Now, sometimes... Let me say this here. Sometimes there are those who say, okay, Lydia and her household was baptized. The jailer is about to go in his household. They're going to be baptized. And sometimes because it mentions household baptisms, they will jump to the conclusion and say this included infants. But now when that, if, that, if that was your notion, I would ask you, how do you know there were infants in that household? My question is, what are their names and what are their ages? And since we're not given that, we don't know how old they are. And we do not know who all of the household included. Could it have included a spouse? Could it have included adult children? Could it have included servants? Could it have included grandparents? All those are possibilities. I don't know who all was in the household. It doesn't tell you. But the reason why I would not believe it's infants, he told them to believe. Would an infant be told, believe on the Lord and thy house? So the household needs to believe as well. Can the infant believe? Well, since an infant doesn't understand that, I would conclude that 
infants are not in this. And besides, why would an infant need to be baptized? Where did that practice even begin? That's an invention of men. If you look in church history, that wasn't practiced till sometime many, many years later after the New Testament was completed. No scripture, no example anywhere in scripture of someone baptizing an infant. Nowhere. And if baptism is for the remission of sins, Acts 2.38, what sins does the baby need to be washed from? By the definition of sin. Sin is the transgression of the law. There are people who believe you're born in sin. There are people in some creeds, some articles of faith, and some churches, they will say that you're, you are defiled from the womb and you inherit Adam's sin. Well, if that's true, by the definition of sin, sin is the transgression of the law, what transgressions is a baby committing in a womb? Are they lying in there? Are they committing murder? What, what laws are they breaking? And since they are not breaking any law, they are not sinning. There is no sin in that child, and so the child does not need forgiveness. That child is safe. Jesus said, let the children come to me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Why would Jesus tell us to imitate a sinner? But he said, if you become converted like a child, you'll be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Is he saying the greatest in heaven is this defiled, little wicked sinner of a child? Of course not. Why are we told to imitate children? In malice be children. In understanding be men. That's what Paul told the Ephesians or the Corinthians. So we're told to imitate children. They don't, they don't carry grudges forever. If they get mad at one another, then they're best friends the next day. We need to be like children in those aspects but we're not imitating something sinful. Children don't need to be baptized. At some point, and I don't know when that is, we reach an age where we understand, where we can believe and, and make the choice of our own free will to follow the Lord and our commitment. And that age may be different with different people. There's no set age that is mentioned in Scripture. But I believe that the people in these households, they believed. It also says, verse 32, They spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. Were they speaking the word to infants? Were they preaching about Jesus to a, a one-month-old that was in those households? Of course not. Verse 33, he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his straightway. Now what we see is that the purpose of baptism uh, was urgent. You might wonder, why, why the same hour of the night? This is really inconvenient. He's a jailer. He's got a job to do. You mean to tell me he's going to take them, leave his post, and he's going to go and he's going to... Let them preach the gospel to his family and he's going to be back. Why not say, well, you know what? I'm going to have to do this later, guys. I'm at work. 
but he stops what he's doing and he gets it done. That tells me that baptism is, the need is immediate. It's not something to put off. Like so many people, they will do it a month from now or sometime later. They, they think you get saved first and then later you get baptized to show you've already been saved. If that were true, tell me why this man saw, I need to do this right now. Let's get this done right now. This is after midnight. This is a very inconvenient time. This is not a celebration type of service. It's not a ceremony. Like, let, let's wait till we get a bunch of people and let's baptize them all together out of convenience. No. This is simply a man who is ready to be right with the Lord. He wants to be saved. What must I do to be saved? And they say, believe, they preach to him, and he's ready to apply the word, and so now he wants to be baptized, and he is the same hour of the night because it's that important. And then we see, look at how it mentions that, verse 34. When he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. When did, they told him to believe. But when did it say he actually believed? When he applied it. He put it into action. He heard the word, and his household did. They were baptized, and now you can say they believed. If someone hears the message that Jesus died for them, he was the Son of God, and he paid that price for me, and then I'm baptized, you could say, well, I really believed because that's what he said. That's the message. But if I say, you know, I believe you, but I don't need to be baptized, I might ask you, did I really believe? When he said to be baptized, and so this is the beginning of a church. There are challenges. There are obstacles. Sometimes those obstacles are our own intentions and God has another plan. That's why we need to say if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. Sometimes we see that things work out and souls are saved and so we need to thank God. This is God's handiwork. This is something far beyond us. We're just simply instruments of His. We're vessels to carry the Word. How we react to it is up to us. And what we need to do is be more like Paul and rejoice and be thankful. Open our eyes to the opportunities of the people we see. The people you come in contact this week. Whatever challenges you face. Look and open your eyes for opportunities to share the gospel to people. And if you find a challenge, let's say there's somebody that doesn't like that. And let's say they give you a hard time. Could it be that there's some way? that this is going to open up another door somehow for another opportunity that you can spread the gospel to them. Look for that opportunity and be ready to take it in whatever way you can, no matter where you are. Even if you're in a, a locked up, you look for opportunities to share the gospel to whoever you can. I appreciate your attention. If you haven't obeyed the gospel, why not now? And if you're a Christian... You've heard what you need to, what you're supposed to do, and you've you've already done it. But you need to continue in that faith and continue to try to spread the gospel. May we be the best we can in this endeavor.
may we be more like Paul and Silas as we all stand in that.